Good morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is we're going to be this morning as we jump back into our series we call Joyful. Um, today's a special day for me as well personally uh, because on this day 11 years ago I preached my very first sermon ever at First Baptist Church in Lancaster and you should be grateful that you weren't there because <laughs> thankfully I'm thankful for the grace of Jesus and the grace of a local church that uh, helped form me as a pastor. My first sermon ever was out of the book of Haggai. And uh, some of you are like, I didn't even know it was a book of the Bible. But uh, it was terrible. I think it was about 12 minutes long, which I guess we wish for some days. But uh, I'm really thankful for the grace of Jesus. And so I'll never forget walking out of that message. And I was so nervous. And I was just, man, I was, I was shaking like a leaf when I was done. And we had the sweetest old ladies in our church that had known me since I was about eight years old or so, seven, eight years old. And as I was standing there by the back door and they were walking out, and I knew it was terrible. And they kept saying, Aaron, that was so wonderful. That was the greatest message we have ever heard. And so they were the sweetest little liars in our church. And uh, very thankful for that. Well, hey, stand with me in honor of reading God's word today. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 5 through 7. And God's word says this through Paul. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks again for your word. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the, the many weeks we've spent in Philippians several months ago. And Lord, as we continue this journey, I pray that we continue to make much of Jesus today. God, give us ears to hear from you this morning. God, give us hearts to receive a word from you today. And Father, would you give us the hands and the feet, Lord, the resolve to live out your word wherever you send us the rest of this week. God, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'll never forget one of the first major fights that my wife Elizabeth and I had about a year or two into our marriage. We had recently moved to Cincinnati from the Lancaster, Ohio area, and I had taken a position as a youth pastor at a church down there, and we had lived there about six months to a year when we moved into our very first home as a couple. We'd always lived in townhomes and apartments, and so this was the very first home that we were going to be moving into. But what was interesting about this home is this wasn't like any other home that like many of you probably live in, because this home was actually located right on church property. Literally, you pulled off of Drake Road into the driveway of the church, and about uh, 30 feet to your left was the house that we lived in. You could walk from the back door of my house to the front door of the church in one minute. That's how close we lived to the church building. And so to have one of our first major fights in our marriage living in that house was not the most ideal of scenarios because we literally lived in a glass house, a fishbowl. People were watching us all the time from the church building. And so I can't remember, I've asked her, she can't remember, we had this major fight about something, we were both bickering back and forth, yelling at each other, we don't remember what it was, all I remember is that I got super ticked off, she was super ticked off, she stormed into one room, I got in the car and I just drove as far as I could, just trying to cool off. Maybe an hour or so later, true story, I came home and I was ready to make men's with my wife and I wasn't going to let this fight get in between us and I opened the garage door, walked into our garage and the door was locked. I called, she didn't answer. I pound on the door, she doesn't answer. 
I scream a few things. She doesn't answer. I'm mad again. <laughs> I walk out of the garage, out to the back door of our house, and I go to the back door. It's locked. I go around to the front of the house, and I go to the front door. It's locked. I go to 14 different windows around my house, praying and hoping that I hadn't thought about a robber before breaking into my home, trying to find one that I could get into the home. Every window in the house was locked. No matter, you have to be really cautious when you live on church property, the things that you scream out loud, and you can't really... Because I was walking this really fine line of, I don't want people to know that me and my wife are having this knockdown, drag-out fight. At the second note, I don't want those driving by to think I'm a robber trying to break into the house. Well, eventually, it took me about 15 minutes or so, I finally found this one window that was in the bathroom of our home. It was elevated about eight feet off the ground, and the thing was about the size of a piece of paper. It was one of those little, like, exhaust windows or something, and it was unlocked. And I'll never forget, I was able to pry that window open. This was right at the front of our house. I shimmied myself up in that window and began to crawl through that thing, and my hips don't lie, they didn't really fit through there. <laughs> And I'm shimmying through this window. Finally, I come tumbling in to the bathroom of our house to find my wife standing right there just cracking up, laughing so hard at me. And you know what? In that moment, we didn't know what we were fighting about anymore. And here's the thing. I've learned, I've been married to my wife for nine years, we're going to fight. Let me tell you something. We, when Pastor Joe and I always do, when we do marriage counseling with couples, this is not part of the sermon, but I want to say this. If you fight, you're normal. I don't know why in our culture we have convinced ourselves that if you fight in marriage that something is wrong with you. You know when you take two imperfect beings and you unite them into one imperfect being, that they have differing opinions, thoughts, things that they do that drive the other person crazy? If you fight, you're normal. For some reason, we think that when you're dating, this is really not part of the message, but we got to talk about this for a moment. We are talking not about marriage today. When you're dating, you always want to be around the person, right? I can't wait to go pick them up. I can't wait to spend time together. We just want to sit on the couch and cuddle and watch a movie, and it's so wonderful. And then you get married, and you hear them chew, and you want to kill them, right? <laughs> Why do you chew that way? Listen, if you fight, you're normal. But here's a lesson we can learn from marriage, that marriage, the perfect picture of the gospel, marriage, a picture of what Jesus has built in the local church, that while fighting is normal and it's part of this environment in which we live in, even in the context of our church, that while we do fight, we also have to fight to stay unified. Good marriages, every time I do a ceremony, I say good marriages don't just happen, they take work. We have to fight to stay unified, to be one, as Jesus calls us. Again, if marriage is a picture of the gospel and a picture of the local church, let's take that idea into the local church. Good churches don't just happen. We have to fight for them. We have to put in the work. If we want to be a unified body of Christ, we have to put in the effort and we have to fight for it because unity, whether in the context of marriage or in the context of our church, is going to take work. It's not just going to happen. The last time we were here in the book of Philippians was uh, about two months ago or so. We did a little 10-week break in our series that we called Asking for a Friend, and that just kept going on and on and on as the Lord was continuing just to teach us stuff with that. But um, we ended the last time in the first four verses of chapter 2. 
Really, in what Paul was doing at the end of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 is Paul was encouraging the church in Philippi. He says, you have to fight for unity. That seemed to be a big issue that this church was dealing with. It wasn't something that's a given. Paul tells them, you've got to work towards this. Fifteen verses allocated in these two chapters about unity. And Paul says, you've got to fight for it. But I love in the first part of chapter 2, if you remember when we talked about that about ten weeks ago or so, Paul says, if we're going to fight for unity, we need to exercise one attitude, one posture, one thing that's going to make unity happen in the context of our church. It's one word. Here it is. It's the word humility. If you want unity to be part of the local body of believers, we need believers that are willing to exercise this posture of humility on a regular basis. Remember a few, uh, several weeks ago, I brought a $20 bill. I don't have that anymore. I spent it. And then I brought this photo. And we said that if I were to offer you the $20 bill or this photo, which one would you take? Well, if you're in your right mind, you'd take the 20 because this photo is worthless to you. But to me, if you offered me $20 of this photo, I'd pick this photo every time. Why? Because I believe this is the first photo I ever have with Elizabeth. To me, this is valuable. Humility is when I ascribe value to something no matter how other people may feel about it. And you see, that's what Jesus calls us to. If we want to have a unified church, we must live in such a way, we must function in such a way as a body of Christ that we ascribe value to one another. And I'm willing to put your wants, your desires, and your needs above my own for the sake of unity, for the sake of the testimony of this church across this community. We have to walk in humility. Friends, I want to remind us of something. You've heard me say this phrase many times over these past couple of years, why this is so important. There's really two reasons. Number one is this. Joe and I were talking about this this morning. If you didn't know this, our church is literally in a season of divine favor from God. My catchphrase right now is that we're living in the middle of a miracle. That's not just something I say. I really believe that. Ask my wife. We talk about it a lot. We're literally living in the middle of a miracle. I'm going to show you that at the end of the message today. We're living in the middle of a miracle. And if there's one thing that the devil wants to do to Living Hope Columbus right now, it's fracture us. He wants to divide us because what God is doing through a two and a half year old church plant with less than 100 people in it, my goodness, if this was a Pentecostal church, I'd have to pause and run around the outside of the building because what he is allowing us to be a part of is phenomenal. It's amazing. But man, if the devil can fracture this, he wants to. Hey, here's the second thing that why unity is so important. And we're going to look at Philippians 2 here. Our country is so divided right now. Political issues, racial issues, health issues. My goodness, we could list them all. You know in this church that there's people on both sides of the divide? And if we let that come in here, and we let, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, divide us, If we let any of those social issues divide us, Satan can take the testimony of this church and fracture it and ruin what Jesus looks like to this community. You see, but at the the core of the gospel is Jesus takes people from various backgrounds, opinions, people from all over the place, unites us under the banner of Jesus, and we say, we may have opinions on things, but the one thing that matters is Jesus. And so we're going to work together, we're going to function in humility together, we're going to learn from each other, and we're going to move the gospel forward through the darkness that is in the city of Columbus and around the world for the name of Jesus. Friends, we have to exercise 
humility. So I want us to look at what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2. How do we, what does it really look like to fight for humility? Again, we talked about this 10 weeks ago, but Paul just kind of pulls a Jesus juke on the Philippian church. Where Paul says you have to fight for humility. Here's how you do it, verses 1 through 4. Then he gets to verse 5 and he says, all right, I'm going to pull out the big guns. Look to Jesus. You're like, dang it, Paul, calm down. Paul says, I told you how to do it and you didn't quite understand. So now, verse 5, I want you to look to Jesus. Here's our three points today. Let's walk through these quickly. Point number one, I just said it, is simply look to Jesus. If you want to walk in humility, simply look to Jesus. Look at verse 5. Again, what does Paul say? Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Fifteen verses from chapter 1 to 2 as Paul's encouraging the Philippian church and us to keep unity among each other in the midst of what could be divisions. If the Philippians were not immune to this, we are not immune to this either. And he starts in verse 5, as I said a second ago, you look to Jesus. What is the example that Jesus set for us? This posture of humility that he lived out. And Jesus says, look, Christian, church, you want to be unified, a unified testimony to the world around you? Here's what I need you to do. Adopt the same attitude that Jesus had. We've done enough of admiring the life of Jesus from afar. There's too many Christians that do that. We're not just called to, adopt, to admire Jesus. We're not called to simply be enamored with the way he lived. Wow, Jesus was so wonderful. I wish I could be like that too. No, Paul says, adopt his attitude. Make that part of who you are. From Jesus' birth all the way to his death, up to his ascension into heaven, Jesus lived with humility. Jesus always walked and talked and lived in a posture of humility. And if we want to know what it looks like to walk that way, Paul says, here's the blueprint. It's Jesus. And then that translates for us living that out in the context of our church. Friends, this is not living in humility out there. That's a different conversation. This is humility in here. This is humility between brothers and sisters in Jesus that identify with a local church together, walking and living this out together. Point number two. Paul jumps then. He says, adopt this attitude that Jesus had. It's this attitude of humility. Now, he says, I'm going to show you how Jesus lived this out through the incarnation. That's a big, fancy theological word where that simply means Jesus moved from the heavenlies to the physical. The incarnation of Christ. Here's point number two if you're a note taker. Paul says Jesus could have. I love this. Look at verse six. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. What's interesting here about verse 6 is Paul makes this kind of reminder for us that Jesus could have leveraged, I don't know if this is a real word, but we're going to use it, his godness, if that's a way we could describe that, I don't know, if that's heresy, I'm sorry, we'll deal with it later. But he could have like used his godness to his own advantage. Jesus being God could have used that to his own self-service, but instead Paul says he didn't. No, Jesus instead laid it aside for the needs of you and I. It's the ultimate example of humility. Do we see it? Paul says, you want to know what the blueprint looks like? Just look at the life of Jesus. He shows you what humility is. Now, a couple things. I encourage you to write this stuff down if you like to take notes to look at this later. These are so important to this conversation. First, note this. Paul says Jesus was God. Now, you may hear that and you're like, I know that. Notice what he says in verse 6. He existed in the form of God. 
He had equality with God, Paul says in verse 6. We might read that and say, I know that. That's, that's elementary. That's simple. You would think so. Lifeway Christian Resources, it's the uh, like research, and research and resource arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, which we're a part of. Um, they did a study recently where they interviewed thousands and thousands and thousands of evangelicals. When I say the term evangelical, I mean somebody that, that believes the gospel, that Jesus is the way to heaven. It's not by what I do. It's not by where I go to church. It's not because I identify with a certain um, sect of Protestant religion. No, it's Jesus that saves. That's an evangelical when we use that term. Lifeway did this research study. This, if this doesn't break your heart, nothing will. 30% of evangelicals, Bible-believing, Jesus-confessing, gospel-living Christians, 30% of those people agreed with this statement. You ready for it? That Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Ouch. 30%, one in three. Think about that looking around this room today. 30% of people believed in the statement that Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. If that doesn't make you squirm a little, we need to have a conversation before you leave today. Here's a second one that they did research on. 65% of evangelicals, Bible-believing, Jesus-confessing, gospel-living Christians. I use that term loosely right now. Two out of three, 65% agreed with this statement. That Jesus was the first and foremost of God's, here's our word, created beings. Woo! If that doesn't make you squirm, we need to have a conversation before you leave today. I want us to hear something real quick. Those are both opposed to the gospel. Those are heretical statements that are opposed to the, to the word of God. Jesus was not simply a good teacher, and Jesus was not a created being. That is a logical, that's a, that's a fallacy that people believe. That is absolute heresy for us to even consider that. Because if our sin problem needed a created being, then one of us could have solved the problem. If our sin problem simply needed a good teacher, then Muhammad or Gandhi would have been enough for us. But that's not what we needed. We needed a Savior. We needed a God, God Himself to do something we couldn't do, and that's pay a sin debt that I owed to the Creator of the universe. I'm filthy rags to God. I couldn't do it. I didn't need a good teacher. I didn't need a created being. I needed God to hold up my end of the bargain. I needed Jesus. He was neither of those things. Now, look back with me at verse 6 real quick. Paul said that Jesus existed in the form of God. What does that mean? We think of the word form and we think of the shape of something. That somebody took the form of something. We think of this, this exterior shape. That word's going to fall a little short for us to understand what Paul is communicating here. When we say the word form, uh, I want you to think of this more as the term being. It means that Jesus possessed the same essence and being of God himself. Why? Because he was God. All right, more theology. We're going to drop this on us. It's this Trinitarian view of God, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all three distinct persons, yet one God. We try to explain this all the time in the church. Let me tell you, this is a divine mystery that this side of heaven will never understand. Jesus is God. God is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They are all one, Jesus included in all of that. Are we confused yet? I hope so. It's this divine mystery. Now listen, we needed a Savior. What do we do with that idea that 65% of evangelicals say they believe that Jesus was created? You know that's Jehovah's Witness theology? No, that's heretical. That's heresy. We don't want any of that. Paul says, no, 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 Jesus was not created. Look with me again at verse 6. Who existing, 
That's an existence that encompasses past, present, and future all at the same time. Jesus was God. He always has been God. He always will be God forever. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. It'll be on our screen. You might be familiar with this. In the beginning was the Word. That's past. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Past, present, and future all in one verse. Jesus is the Word. You see, Jesus is God. He's not a created being. He was, always will be, and is God. Paul chose that word existing. He said that a moment ago. This continuous state of being. And despite all of those things, what does Paul show us here? Look again with me at verse 6. That Jesus didn't exploit that to his own advantage. He didn't use that godness to his own advantage. He could have. And he would have been just in doing so. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus could have completely exploited his position in being as God and said, you know what? Those are filthy, dirty sinners, and I want nothing to do with them. I'm going to punish them forever. And you know God would have been totally just in doing that. We don't like to hear that in the church. But that's our God, and that's okay. But then grace steps in, and mercy steps in, and Jesus says rather than exploit that position... The word there means to cling to something. It's this idea of grasping something and refusing to let go. Instead, what did Jesus do? He didn't cling to it. He let it go. Why? For the needs of somebody else. Jesus was willing to give up the godness for my sake and for your sake. Talk about the supreme example of humility in action. Paul says adopt that same attitude. I'm not going to cling to these things. Instead, I'm going to be like Jesus and let him go for the sake of somebody else. I'm going to ascribe value to you even though I may feel like you don't deserve it. That's what Jesus shows us. Here's our third point. Jesus could have, point number two, but point three is this, but Jesus didn't. Look at verse seven. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Rather than exploit his position, what did Jesus do? He he emptied himself. This is known as the incarnation. We said that just a moment ago. This is the divine and heavenly entering flesh and bone. This is a fascinating thing that is a distinction, really, between the Christian faith and so many other faith systems. Now, I want to make sure we don't get into some more false doctrine here. I I said a moment ago we're talking about doctrine and theology, so we've got to be real careful with some of this stuff here. Um, Jesus, hear me, when Jesus came from the heavenlies to dwell as a human, we see that in every Christmas when he comes as the baby Jesus, came as a servant. Jesus did not completely remove all divinity from himself. He didn't just like hang his like, like, like Jesusness at the doorway of heaven and like, all right, God, I'm going, I'm going to go down to earth. I'll be back in a bit. That's not how that works. He didn't just like press this little like drain on the side of his hip and all the God stuff just like leaked out into a bucket. And he's like, I'll get it. I'll drink it when I come back. Oh, that's weird. That wasn't in my notes either. <laughs> uh, I don't know what's wrong with me. This is like 11 years ago all over again. He didn't remove all the divinity from himself. If he did, and this is so important, man, because this is, it's heresy if we get this wrong. If Jesus had removed his, his divine power, divine nature, and divine attributes from him, if he had removed those, he would cease to be God. That's an impossibility. Do we get that? 
Jesus can't be any less God than he is because he's God. God encompasses all of himself. He can never be less. That's like me coming to you and saying, all right, uh, this week I'm going to shave my head because I'm already going bald. I'm going to grow a beard. Not going to happen. Can't. Tried. I'm going to shave my head. I'm going to grow a beard. I'm going to get a third arm, and I need you to refer to me as Thor from now on. Some of you are like, yeah, right. Did you know my name Aaron actually means mountain? So feel free to call me that. But anyways, <laughs> even if I shaved my head, grew a beard, had a third arm, dyed my face purple, I could do all this crazy thing and tell you, call me Thor. You would always see me as Aaron. Why? Because that's who I am. No matter what I do, where I go, no matter what, I'm always going to be Aaron. I can be no less Aaron than I am right now. Jesus, in emptying himself, never became less God. He always was God. So what does that verse mean, verse 7? If you're a note taker, write this down. It was the voluntary non-usage of his divine attributes. The voluntary non-usage of his divine attributes. I like to think of it this way, that Jesus almost put a cloak over his divinity. Just this big cloak that kind of wrapped him up. This human flesh that just kind of wrapped around him. It's neat because in Luke chapter 9, verse 32, it'll be on our screen. The, the Mount of Transfiguration is what this is called. It says, Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake up on the mountain, they saw Jesus' glory. Jesus' physical body in his full glory. And two men who were standing with him, Moses and Elijah, in that moment. At this transfiguration where Jesus was showing Peter, James, and John his eternal glory that they'll see in heaven someday. We see Jesus almost like pull back the cloak for a minute. He just kind of pulled back that cloak on these guys and he says, I'm still God. I got this all under control. And then he put the cloak right back. It was the voluntary non-usage of his attributes for our sake. Why? Because to die for us, Jesus had to become one of us. He had to live like us, breathe like us, eat like us, be us in order to die for us. He could have exploited his position, but he didn't. You see, Jesus rightfully could have came to earth as a king. Have you thought about that? He could have came as a king. He could have walked into the throne room of Caesar and said, get off, I'm on. Move. But he didn't. No, instead, he came to a, a stable just outside of Bethlehem as a lowly baby born to a bunch of nobodies who had nothing. Why? Because Jesus had to take the lowliest form and come as an example of humility self-emptying. But note the contrast here at the end of verse 7. Look what he says. He emptied himself by assuming the form of what? A servant. Rather than a king, a baby. Rather than a warrior, a servant. The word there is this uh, Greek term doulos. You've probably heard this before. Doulos. It's this idea of a bond servant. A bond servant was a, a servant that voluntarily placed themselves under your authority. They weren't forced into it. No, they chose that position. And Jesus, rather than clinging to those things, He laid it aside for our sake, voluntarily coming as the lowliest of lows for you and me, emptying Himself into the likeness of humanity. Now, I have a friend, Pastor Joe Veal. Um, he pastors, uh, he's an evangelist out of Cincinnati. He always says this uh, when he preaches. He says, was Jesus 100% God when he was on this earth? Yes. Was Jesus 100% man when he was on this earth? Yes. 
Jesus in this divine mystery was the only 200% being to ever exist. We can't imagine that. But that's what he came to do for us. He was not less God. He simply added humanity to his divinity for a season. Because we had a sin debt we couldn't pay. An end of the bargain we couldn't uphold with God. And so Jesus steps into the picture and says, I'm going to hold up God's end and your end to ensure that you can have a restored relationship with the creator of the universe. Hebrews 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 15 says this. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus stepped out of heaven to those lowliest forms. Why? So he would understand what we go through. But instead, we have one who's been tempted as every way that we are, yet without sin. Accomplishing what we couldn't accomplish for our sake and his glory. Jesus modeling this example of humility for us, friends, what it looks like to live humble lives as Christ followers. Jesus over and over throughout his life saying, you matter to me more and I'm willing to give up things for your sake to ensure that you can have that restored relationship with me. So what's our takeaway for today and we're done? Uh, we want to keep taking ground as a church. If you didn't know that, yes. We're not done. We're going to make an announcement here in a moment that's just phase one of so many things that we are going to do as a church. Like, we're not slowing up now. If you don't like being in a fast-moving environment, this is not the church for you. Because sometimes we get ideas on Thursday, and by Sunday at 10.15, we're doing them. That's just the way we work around here. Why? Because we want to take ground for the kingdom's sake, no matter what it takes. And when Jesus decides to pour out the floodgates on this place, I want to make sure that we've built a big enough boat, man. I'm ready. But what does that take? It takes us being together. It takes us walking in unity. It takes me every time I walk through these doors to gather with my family to say, I'm going to lay aside my own desires, opinions, and wants because the people's desires, wants, and opinion in there matter more than me. If we ever become a church that argues over carpet color, I will throat kick you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around that junk. We're not doing that here. There are too many lost people. That wasn't in the notes either. <laughs> There's too many lost people that don't know Jesus. There's too many Christians that have never been discipled in their walk with Christ. We don't got time for that junk. And the way that happens is when we have Christians who are willingly stepping into environments and saying, I will be humble because Jesus showed me how. And out of my humility will flow unity. And if we do have tension, we will both take the low road and meet each other there and work through this for the sake of unity, for the testimony of Jesus in our community, period. If you're not afraid of me throat kicking you, you should see Joe. <laughs> He'll get you. You've got to push back darkness, y'all. But that happens when we're unified. To see people meet Jesus. That's what we're about, helping people find Jesus and follow Jesus. It's not just the find, it's the follow. We're here for the Christian and the non-believer. That's why we exist, and that happens through a unified church. Let me pray for us as the praise team comes. Father, you're so good to us, and you're so gracious. God, Lord, thanks for today. Father, thank you for Paul's writing, God, that just gives us that, that glimpse back into the life of Jesus and God, as we say so many times around here, Lord, we know we're living in the middle of a miracle. Father, we pray that you keep us in that humble posture. God, your word says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In due time, he will exalt you.
God, we want to remain humble for the glory of Jesus. It's not about living hope. It's not about any person in here. It's about Jesus. That's why we exist, is to make Jesus big. And Father, I pray that we never let any tension, Father, that we ne never let any friction or anything divide us from that main mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. That's what we're about. Father, I pray now as we sing, that it would just be a sweet sound through the throne room of heaven as we bring glory to you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.